Welcome to the Kotki Ride Home for Thursday, August 12th, 2021. I'm Jackson Bird. Today, how does a kid's network establish their brand identity? Apparently, riff on a highbrow architectural style and add heaping amounts of radioactive green slime. On the 30th anniversary of the first Nicktoons, a look back at Nickelodeon's iconic aesthetic. Plus, a new huge study that upends a lot of what we thought we knew about metabolism. And a fake website about fake movies. Here are some of the cool things from the news today. Exactly 30 years ago yesterday, Nickelodeon, a then 12-year-old TV channel very much still in its infancy, launched its very first original animated shows. Branded as Nicktoons, Doug, Rugrats, and Ren and Stimpy paved the way for a whole new direction in kids' animation. And to reflect on this auspicious milestone, The Ringer has been pumping out a deluge of articles on every possible topic related to Nickelodeon as part of their Nick Week, even running a Best Nickelodeon Character Bracket, which is currently in the Elite Eight, with, among other matchups, Kenan Thompson currently duking it out with Tommy Pickles. Link in the show notes if you want to vote. If you grew up with Nickelodeon, I definitely recommend heading over to The Ringer for some excellent articles on topics like An Oral History of Nickelodeon Guts, Between Two Peets, How Hey Arnold and Its Iconic Score Introduced a Generation to Jazz, and A Complete Statistical Breakdown of the Zoe 101 Basketball Game. I have no idea what that last one means, because I fall firmly in what The Ringer calls the pre-Spongebob era. As they describe it, quote, Nick can mean many different things to many different people, depending on when, exactly, they were between the ages of 6 and 16. The generational divide is most cleanly drawn in the sands of Bikini Bottom. You're either pre-Spongebob or post-Spongebob. But even in that stratification, there are countless micro-generations. Those who bowed down to Double Dare and the Adventure of Pete and Pete, those who caught the peaks of The Fairly Odd Parents and iCarly. But no matter which shows we gravitated toward, almost all of us have bled slime green at one point or another. End quote. And that slime green, as well as the bright orange splats and complimentary garish purple, is what I really want to talk about today. The loud, iconic design aesthetic of early 90s Nickelodeon. So Nickelodeon, which launched in 1979, was the very first channel devoted entirely to kids. A great idea in concept, but the head honchos had never really worked in children's entertainment, so they didn't exactly know what they were doing. And it took a while for Nick to really figure it out. Maybe they could have cracked it sooner if they'd had some clues from Summer Sanders. But I digress. Once they got a better idea of what they were actually going for, thanks in part to MTV co-founder Fred Siebert, who observed, quote, Looney Tunes and rock and roll had a lot of things in common, and one of those things that was in common was a sort of subversion of the established world, of parents, of teachers, of, you know, government, and of the establishment, end quote. So this channel for kids needed to subvert anything adults liked or told kids to do, and thus, quoting The Ringer, a new logo and direction was born, one that spoke to that rejection of order. It was a mess, literally, the shape of a splat. It was also an invitation to imagine. The Nick logo wasn't only a splat, it could be any orange shape that you could dream of, from an alligator to a blimp. Scott Nash, a designer brought in to help with the logo, says that the logo was a backup concept, one scribbled on a coffee cup 
up on a plane ride ahead of a meeting with Siebert to present a different idea. The orange color was selected because it clashed with everything. And more importantly, based on research we found, Nash says, the colors that were least liked by adults at the time were orange and, like, slimy green. That sort of gave us our marching orders as to what the colors should be. It would remain the corporate logo for more than two decades, and Nickelodeon would cultivate a reputation not just as a place to watch a designated program at a certain time, but as a place to just watch. The Nickelodeon Clubhouse is how Siebert describes it. No parents allowed, the only place for kids. End quote. And that idea really pulled through. When Nickelodeon launched their Orlando studio in 1990, part of a sweetheart deal with Universal Studios who was about to open their theme park and had determined that a working studio on the campus would bring in more visitors, they dubbed it the first world headquarters for kids. Especially in that pre-Spongebob era, Nick's commitment to being that kind of clubhouse space as opposed to just a TV channel was evident. They had toys, not tied to any of their TV shows, just weird, gross, and innovative stuff like Gak and Floam that grossed down adults and all came in Nick's trademark neon colors. They had a magazine that, I can tell you as a subscriber, was much more about how to pull off pranks and kid-centered perspectives on current events than promo for Nicktoons. The Ringer recounts the Nick Time Capsule from 1992, which included items selected by the network's World Kid Council, things like a Game Boy and a skateboard, but also a chunk of the Berlin Wall and materials about AIDS and Operation Desert Storm. And I remember spending most of the first day of the 21st century watching Nickelodeon's 24-hour broadcast of kids from around the world discussing what they thought the world would be like in the years to come. Nick felt like a place where kids could turn and not be talked down to. Quoting The Ringer, Whereas the Disney Channel was a glittery destination for showbiz kids, Nickelodeon was wish fulfillment for the people. End quote. Despite producers and set designers often remarking in retrospect that they didn't really have a plan or were just sort of throwing things together for a lot of shows, the Nickelodeon mission was strong across the design of all of their, at the time, predominantly live game shows. And they did at least know what they were doing broadly. They were appealing to kids, and more than any other competitor that came about, they really got what kids wanted. Quoting again, Nickelodeon boasted a fantastical, eye-popping aesthetic that distinguished it from every other network. Despite initially small budgets and limited space, each show leaned into its interactive, tactile environment, epitomizing Nick's commitment to kid-inspired entertainment and hooking a generation in the process. Identifying with Nickelodeon became so easy because kids could so easily identify a Nickelodeon show. End quote. And some of those unique design elements came from an Italian postmodern architecture and design group called the Memphis Group. It was big in the 80s. Lots of black squiggles on white backgrounds, lots of chunks of pastelish yet bright colors, everything asymmetrical. Imagine something like Pee Wee's Playhouse. In 1986, when Nickelodeon was developing their very first game show, Memphis design, according to The Ringer, wasn't too well known outside of New York art galleries. Nickelodeon took that high-fashion design and adapted it for Double Dare, their part trivia, part obstacle course show that imagined kids as the ball in a Rube Goldberg machine, often dousing them with slime, fake boogers, pizza toppings, and all other manner of mess. 
So much about Double Dare went on to define Nickelodeon's aesthetics going forward, as The Ringer describes Nick's vibe, quote, absurd yet earnest, manufactured yet chaotic, end quote. And nothing was more chaotic on Nick and more crucial eventually to its aesthetic than the bright green slime. Surprisingly, when the network started, producer Jeffrey Darby was adamant that they never used the color green on sets. He said, quote, Green was almost banned. I hated green. If you put a person in front of green, their complexion goes really sallow. It looks awful. End quote. So how did green slime poured all over the head of a kid or tween celebrity become a hallmark of the channel? By accident, of course. While working on Nick's first original show, You Can't Do That on Television, there was a skit planned where someone in a dungeon would pull a toilet chain and get covered in a bunch of waste. But when the shoot got delayed, they soon found the mixture they'd created had spawned some incredibly smelly green crud. They still used it, and it worked out so well that they wrote an entire episode for the show centered around green slime, this time making it on purpose. And the secret recipe for slime, in case you've always wondered, oatmeal, baby shampoo, applesauce, and green dye. At least for the first decade or so. By the early 2000s, it had been replaced with a methyl cellulose mix, which doesn't sound nearly as tasty. Though I can report, as someone fortunate enough to have lived out his childhood dreams by getting slimed a few years back, it does retain a slightly sweet taste and is very cold. Aside from helping complete Nickelodeon's very strong brand aesthetic, the slime encapsulated all the crucial elements of what made Nick great. It was messy. It was against the rules. It was unexpected. It was funny. It didn't make a ton of sense, but kids loved it, and they loved to suggest innovations on it. No celebrity could be too cool to get slimed, and no kid too ordinary. Part of what made Nick great in the early days was just how many everyday kids they showcased and treated equitably, as if their thoughts and opinions mattered. The landscape of children's entertainment is very different now, and I'd even say Nickelodeon really started changing around that crucial Spongebob era as they tried to compete with the Disney Channel and Cartoon Network, increasing their slate of cartoons and teen dramedies and decreasing the game shows, and maybe arguably as childhood changed a little too, as it does with every generation. But I think there's something to that idea of kid viewers feeling realistically like they could be a part of something really cool. That's part of why kids love YouTubers and TikTokers so much today. It's a lot of that same thing. You know, for the most part, they imagine that they could easily be and do all the same things as those creators they're watching. And a lot of the creators are doing irreverent things, cracking jokes you might not hear on a sanitized kids TV show, and asking for constant feedback from the young people watching. Just like Nick did. So much of that is disparate and siloed, though. Nickelodeon's nostalgic stain power will be in how inescapable it was for a while. It's neon splats of color popping up everywhere as a signpost that that TV show, that toy, that clock radio was for kids. And not in a pedagogical kind of way, but in a cool way. It was something you wanted to be a part of. And, based on this series from The Ringer, maybe a lot of us still do. So, the common knowledge about metabolism is that after your 20s-ish, it continues to get slower and slower as you age, and that, generally speaking, women's metabolisms are slower than men's. Well, a new study of over 6,500 people between the ages of 8 days and 95 years says both of those things are wrong. 
Now, this could easily sound like some new junk science being heralded in wellness magazines, but the study is actually a pretty solid one, and kinda not just one. Quoting the New York Times, Metabolic research is expensive, and so most published studies have had very few participants. But the new study's principal investigator, Herman Ponser, an evolutionary anthropologist at Duke University, said that the project's participating researchers agreed to share their data. There are more than 80 co-authors on the study. By combining efforts from half a dozen labs collected over 40 years, they had sufficient information to ask general questions about changes in metabolism over a lifetime. All of the research centers involved in the project were studying metabolic rates with a method considered the gold standard, doubly labeled water. It involves measuring calories burned by tracking the amount of carbon dioxide a person exhales during daily activities, end quote. And essentially, they found that the metabolic rate can certainly vary from individual to individual, but that there are four main phases in life. Quoting again, there's infancy up until age one when calorie burning is at its peak, accelerating until it is 50% above the adult rate. Then, from age 1 to about age 20, metabolism gradually slows by about 3% a year. From age 20 to age 60, it holds steady. And after age 60, it declines by about 0.7% a year. Once the researchers controlled for body size and the amount of muscle people have, they also found no differences between men and women. End quote. That contradicts a lot of things we, in general, and experts have long believed, and it opens up a lot of other questions. Like, if someone is experiencing weight gain that seems like a slowed metabolism correlated with age, but it's not, should we be investigating another cause? And what is the underlying cause for people who have metabolic rates far outside the average, which we can see still follow this pattern? Could those questions lead to important findings we haven't considered before? The Times suggests that this study could change how we think about human physiology and affect dosages, for example, especially for young children and older people. There are so many things to consider here. Leanne Redman, an energy balance physiologist at Pennington Biomedical Research Institute, called the study pivotal and predicts that it will be in textbooks. And yeah, if this study really does hold up, it'll be quite fascinating to see where we go from here. If you love fake things, then have I got a recommendation for you. It's a fake website about fake TV shows and fake movies. If you've ever wanted to watch Threat Level Midnight, Michael's daring screenplay from The Office, or Angels with Filthy Souls, the classic mobster film that Kevin watches repeatedly in Home Alone, now you can pretend to. A new site called Nestflix has compiled all of the fake shows within shows and fictional movies within movies. Crucially, while you can browse quite an impressive collection, you can't stream any of these for real, even though all the listings do have clips that exist, since that's one of the criteria for inclusion. You just get a nicely designed Netflix-esque description page and some thumbnail stills. As creator Lynn Fisher described it on Twitter, quote, it's just a wiki doing some cosplay. And as The Verge says, quote, It's a fascinating look at how self-referential most modern film and TV is. There are a lot of fake sequels. But also how ingrained Netflix's content strategy and interface are in our culture generally. And it's one thing to cut away to a scene from a fake movie or show during a comedy, but it's a whole other thing to have it packaged up with stills, art, and metadata like it's ready to stream. It doesn't make any of the fake movies or shows feel more real, but it does make them funny all over again. 
end quotes. As true, the details are what really make this website fun. And hey, even if you can't watch the whole fake thing, it might inspire you to go back and watch the movie or TV show your favorites are from. And submissions are paused right now because the site really blew up over the last 24 hours, but check back soon if you want to submit another fake show for this fake site. Well, that is it from me for today. As always, this show was produced by Ride Home Media and Kotki.org. I am Jackson Bird, and I will talk to you again tomorrow.